Jane Austen's Emma, Volume 3, Part 3, Chapters 7 through 9. Chapter 7 features the Box Hill incident about which more has been written than any other incident in the novel, because it represents a major turning point. This is the outing that was initially suggested by Mrs. Elton. Box Hill is a famous picnic spot and one to which Emma had never been. The weather is fine on this the day after the strawberry picking at Donwell Abbey, and expectations are very high that this will be a delightful expedition, but it soon goes wrong. The opening paragraph of the chapter reads as follows. They had a very fine day for Box Hill, and all the other outward circumstances of arrangement, accommodation, and punctuality were in favor of a pleasant party. Mr. Weston directed the whole, officiating safely between Hartfield and the vicarage, and everybody was in good time. Emma and Harriet went together, Miss Bates and her niece with the Eltons, the gentleman on horseback. Mrs. Weston remained with Mr. Woodhouse. Nothing was wanting but to be happy when they got there. Seven miles were traveled in expectation of enjoyment, and everybody had a burst of admiration on first arriving. But in the general amount of the day, there was deficiency. There was a languor, a want of spirits, a want of union which could not be got over. They separated too much into parties. The Eltons walked together, Mr. Knightley took charge of Miss Bates and Jane, and Emma and Harriet belonged to Frank Churchill. And Mr. Weston tried in vain to make them harmonize better. It seemed at first an accidental division, but it never materially varied. Mr. and Mrs. Elton, indeed, showed no unwillingness to mix and be as agreeable as they could, but during the two whole hours that were spent on the hill, there seemed a principle of separation between the other parties too strong for any fine prospects or any cold collation or any cheerful Mr. Weston to remove. At first, it was downright dullness to Emma. She had never seen Frank Churchill so silent and stupid. He said nothing worth hearing, looked without seeing, admired without intelligence, listened without knowing what she said. End quote. And adding to the overall discontent of the day, Frank Churchill spends much of his time flattering Emma. Quote, and Emma, glad to be enlivened, not sorry to be flattered, was gay and easy too, and gave him all the friendly encouragement, the admission to be gallant, which she had ever given in the first and most animating period of their acquaintance, but which now, in her own estimation, meant nothing though in the judgment of most people looking on, it must have had such an appearance as no English word but flirtation could very well describe. Mr. Frank Churchill and Miss Woodhouse flirted together excessively. They were laying themselves open to that very phrase and to having it sent off in a letter to Maple Grove by one lady, to Ireland by another, end quote. Flirtation, though it's a fairly harmless term for us today, was not viewed very favorably in the early 19th century, and flirtation by a woman was very bad for her reputation. 
it leaves her open to the charge of leading a man on, and this was very much frowned upon. But Frank is also prone to this kind of behavior, as we have seen, and such behavior by either men or women was not seen as genteel and would promote gossip. On this day of what the narrator calls a principle of separation, with the group separating too much into parties, we see Frank and Emma's flirtation setting up one of the most noteworthy incidents in the novel. Because the people are not really talking to each other, Frank Churchill tries to engage the rest of the group in a game, another of the novel's occurrences of wordplay. He begins... Ladies and gentlemen, I am ordered by Miss Woodhouse, who, wherever she is, presides, to say that she desires to know what you are all thinking of. Some laughed and answered good-humoredly. Miss Bates said a great deal. Mrs. Elton swelled at the idea of Miss Woodhouse's presiding. Mr. Knightley's answer was the most distinct. Is Miss Woodhouse sure that she would like to hear what we are all thinking of, end quote. Mrs. Elton swelled or bristled because she is still basking in her status as a bride, and it is presumed that she should be presiding, so this statement annoys her. And also, as a result of Mr. Knightley's questioning whether Miss Woodhouse would really like to know what they are all thinking, Frank's first suggestion falters. He comes up with another idea. It will not do, whispered Frank to Emma. They are most of them affronted. I will attack them with more address. Ladies and gentlemen, I am ordered by Miss Woodhouse to say that she waives her right of knowing exactly what you may all be thinking of and only requires something very entertaining from each of you in a general way. Here are seven of you besides myself, who she is pleased to say, and very entertaining already, and she only demands from each of you either one thing very clever, be it prose or verse, original or repeated, or two things moderately clever, or three things very dull indeed, and she engages to laugh heartily at them all. Oh, very well, exclaimed Miss Bates. Then I need not be uneasy. Three things very dull indeed. That will just do for me, you know. I shall be sure to say three dull things as soon as ever I open my mouth, shan't I? Looking round with the most good-humoured dependence on everybody's assent. Do not you all think I shall? Emma could not resist. Ah, madam, but there may be a difficulty. Pardon me, but you will be limited as to number. Only three at once. Miss Bates, deceived by the mock ceremony of her manner, did not immediately catch her meaning, but when it burst on her it could not anger, though a slight blush showed that it could pain her. Ah, well, to be sure, yes, I see what she means, turning to Mr. Knightley, and I will try to hold my tongue. I must make myself very disagreeable, or she would not have said such a thing to an old friend, end quote. After a few more feeble attempts to entertain each other, the party begins to wind down. The Eltons decide that it's a good time to take a walk, and further efforts to engage everyone in conversation fail. The important thing about this incident is that Emma's display of wit and her inability to resist the opening offered to her really insults Miss Bates publicly. As everyone makes their way to the carriages to depart, Mr. Knightley approaches Emma, quote, 
While waiting for the carriage, she found Mr. Knightley by her side. He looked round, as if to see that no one were near, and then said, Emma, I must once more speak to you, as I have been used to do, a privilege rather endured than allowed, perhaps, but I must still use it. I cannot see you acting wrong without a remonstrance. How could you be so unfeeling to Miss Bates? How could you be so insolent in your wit to a woman of her character, age, and situation? Emma, I had not thought it possible. Emma recollected, blushed, was sorry, but tried to laugh it off. Nay, how could I help saying what I did? Nobody could have helped it. It was not so very bad. I dare say she did not understand me. I assure you she did. She felt your full meaning. She has talked of it since. I wish you could have heard how she talked of it, with what candor and generosity. I wish you could have heard her honoring your forbearance in being able to pay her such attentions as she was forever receiving from yourself and your father when her society must be so irksome. Unquote. Emma goes on to say that I know there is not a better creature in the world, but you must allow that what is good and what is ridiculous are most unfortunately blended in her. Mr. Knightley's reply says very much about the responsibilities of gentility. They are blended, said he, I acknowledge, and were she prosperous, I could allow much for the occasional prevalence of the ridiculous over the good. Were she a woman of fortune, I would leave every harmless absurdity to take its chance. I would not quarrel with you for any liberties of manner. Were she your equal in situation, but Emma, consider how far this is from being the case. She is poor. She has sunk from the comforts she was born to, and if she lived to old age, must probably sink more. Her situation should secure your compassion. It was badly done indeed. You, whom she had known from an infant, whom she had seen grow up from a period when her notice was an honor, to have you now, in thoughtless spirits and the pride of the moment, laugh at her, humble her, and before her niece, too, and before others, many of whom, certainly some, would be entirely guided by your treatment of her. This is not pleasant to you, Emma, and it is very far from pleasant to me, but I must, I will, I will tell you truths while I can, end quote. Emma is unable to face Mr. Knightley. She keeps her face averted and feels he has misinterpreted her words to Miss Bates, but mixed with this are anger against herself, mortification, and deep concern. She is unable to speak either and has a very bad return journey. The narrator tells us, Emma felt the tears running down her cheeks almost all the way home without being at any trouble to check them, extraordinary as they were. Chapter 8 opens on the evening of the same day, with Emma still regretting her behavior on Box Hill. She spends the evening playing backgammon with her father, though she feels now that she does not deserve his esteem of her. She resolves to call upon Miss Bates the next day and to endeavor to behave more kindly toward her. When Emma arrives at Miss Bates's residence the next morning, there is a moment of awkwardness as she climbs the stairs. 
There was a bustle on her approach, a good deal of moving and talking. She heard Miss Bates's voice. Something was to be done in a hurry. The maid looked frightened and awkward, hoped she would be pleased to wait a moment, and then ushered her in too soon. The aunt and niece seemed both escaping into the adjoining room. Jane she had a distinct glimpse of, looking extremely ill, and before the door had shut them out, she heard Miss Bates saying, "'Well, my dear,' I shall say you are laid down upon the bed, and I am sure you are ill enough. End quote. Miss Bates comes out to say that Miss Fairfax is suffering from a headache, and Emma feels genuinely sorry, as she has begun to feel more sympathy for Jane. As she is sitting and talking with Miss Bates, who apologizes for the awkwardness upon Emma's arrival and alludes to Jane's having found a situation at last, Emma expresses her concern for Jane. And Miss Bates replies, So very kind, replied Miss Bates, but you are always kind. There was no bearing such an always, and to break through her dreadful gratitude, Emma made the direct inquiry of, Where, may I ask, is Miss Fairfax going? To a Mrs. Smallridge, charming woman, most superior, to have the charge of her three little girls. In other words, Jane has decided to accept the situation proposed by Mrs. Elton. Miss Bates, who is unable to speak ill of anyone, says, Yes, our good Mrs. Elton, the most indefatigable true friend, she would not take a denial. She would not let Jane say no. Miss Bates's kindness toward everyone and her having received Emma so graciously is a torment to Emma, but she is genuinely pleased that if Jane must go into a career as a governess, she is at least going to a good home where she will be treated well. During the visit, Emma also learns that Frank Churchill has been summoned back home again by his aunt. There is a moment when Emma reflects upon the relative positions in the world of Mrs. Churchill and Jane Fairfax. Quote, the contrast between Mrs. Churchill's importance in the world and Jane Fairfax's struck her. One was everything, the other nothing. And she sat musing on the difference of women's destiny, and quite unconscious on what her eyes were fixed, till roused by Miss Bates saying, I, I see what you are thinking of, the pianoforte. What is to become of that? End quote. So, on the whole, Emma has had a satisfactory visit with Miss Bates, who seems to bear her no ill will as a result of the insult, but in some ways, her gracious reception of Emma haunts Emma even more. After her visit with Miss Bates, Emma returns home in Chapter 9, just in time to see Mr. Knightley, who is on the verge of leaving for London to visit Mr. and Mrs. John Knightley. Mr. Woodhouse mentions that Dear Emma has been to call on Mrs. and Miss Bates, Mr. Knightley, as I told you before. She is always so attentive to them. Emma's color was heightened by this unjust praise, and with a smile and shake of the head, which spoke much, she looked at Mr. Knightley. It seemed as if there were an instantaneous impression in her favor, as if his eyes received the truth from hers, and all that had passed of good in her feelings were at once caught and honored. He looked at her with a glow of regard, end quote. 
Emma wishes that she had arrived a few minutes earlier so she could have spoken with Mr. Knightley about Jane's new position, but he has to leave. She is gratified to see that his behavior toward her assures her that she had fully recovered his good opinion. Shortly after this, there is news of another sort. Quote, An express arrived at Randall's to announce the death of Mrs. Churchill. Though her nephew had had no particular reason to hasten back on her account, she had not lived above six and thirty hours after his return. A sudden seizure of a different nature from anything foreboded by her general state had carried her off after a short struggle. The great Mrs. Churchill was no more. It was felt as such things must be felt. Everybody had a degree of gravity and sorrow, tenderness towards the departed, solicitude for the surviving friends, and, in a reasonable time, curiosity to know where she would be buried. Goldsmith tells us that when lovely woman stoops to folly, she has nothing to do but to die, and when she stoops to be disagreeable, it is equally to be recommended as a clearer of ill fame. Mrs. Churchill, after being disliked at least twenty-five years, was now spoken of with compassionate allowances. In one point she was fully justified. She had never been admitted before to be seriously ill. The event acquitted her of all the fancifulness and all the selfishness of imaginary complaints. End quote. One of Emma's first thoughts was for Harriet Smith. The character of Mrs. Churchill, the grief of her husband, her mind glanced over them both with awe and compassion, and then rested with lightened feelings on how Frank must be affected by the event, how benefited, how freed. She saw in a moment all the possible good. Now an attachment to Harriet Smith would have nothing to encounter. Mr. Churchill, independent of his wife, was feared by nobody, an easy, guidable man to be persuaded into anything by his nephew. End quote. So, as we see here, Emma has not entirely learned her lesson and has not been completely cured of her matchmaking, even if she is less open about it than before. One of her resolutions out of this was to pay more attention to Jane Fairfax, quote, whose prospects were closing while Harriet's opened, end quote. And Emma makes several attempts to do nice things for Miss Fairfax, but finds all her offers rejected. Though frustrated, she can understand this. She proposes that Jane might want a carriage ride in the country to get some air and sends a message to that effect, but receives a reply in the form of a note. Miss Fairfax's compliments and thanks, but is quite unequal to any exercise. Emma makes some other attempts which are rebuffed as well. She is chagrined to learn later that at the same time that Miss Fairfax was supposedly unequal to any exercise, she was seen wandering around the meadows not far from Highbury. Emma realizes that it is Emma herself whom Jane is rejecting, and though she is sorry for this, she does not blame Jane for it. On learning from Miss Bates that Jane has not been eating, Emma also sends Jane some arrowroot thought to be good for the stomach, but, quote, in half an hour the arrowroot was returned, 
with a thousand thanks from Miss Bates, but dear Jane would not be satisfied without its being sent back. It was a thing she could not take, and moreover, she insisted on her saying that she was not at all in want of anything, end quote. So as the chapter ends, Emma is belatedly trying to make amends for her past neglect of Jane and is not having much luck. She is also sorry that Mr. Knightley is not there to observe her efforts, for could Mr. Knightley have been privy to all her attempts of assisting Jane Fairfax? Could he even have seen into her heart? He would not, on this occasion, have found anything to reprove. <laughs> 